Welcome to the Market in Motion podcast for financial advisors, presented by FMG Suite. Listen to interviews with the movers, shakers, geniuses, and innovators of the financial advisory world. Visit FMGSuite.com to discover more great resources and products to transform you into an extraordinary marketer and grow your advisory. And now, without further delay, the Market in Motion podcast for financial advisors. Hi, everybody. Mike Woods here, one of the founding members of FMG Suite. Welcome to the Market in Motion podcast for financial advisors presented by FMG Suite. More than 40,000 advisors rely on FMG Suite to help them stay connected, build relationships, and grow their business. Now it's your turn. Visit us at fmgsuite.com and schedule a demo so you can see our tools in action. Today, I'm excited to be joined by my good friend, Jamie Hopkins, who's the Director of Retirement Research for Carson Wealth. Jamie is one smart dude in our industry. He's the Associate Professor of Taxation at the College of Financial Services in the Retirement Income Program. He's a graduate of the Villanova Law School, and if that's not enough, Jamie will kick your butt in the swimming pool. He was captain of his team at Davidson College. Today, Jamie and I are going to talk about the basics of the SECURE Act, some information you should know off the top of your head, stretch IRAs are dead, and retirement distributions now start at age 72. Jamie and I will also touch on some smaller provisions of the new law. The strong takeaway message? Tax diversification is more important than ever. Reps will have some new opportunity to discuss new products that will be created coming out of the SECURE Act, and we're going to touch on most of them. So buckle up. Now on with the show. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Jamie Hopkins, who is the Director of Retirement Research at Carson Wealth. Hi, Jamie. Hi. Good to see you again. Good to see you. Hey, I hear congratulations are in order. Yesterday, the uh, Carson Group promoted you to Managing Director of the current firm's coaching division. Yeah, so I took over our coaching business, and uh, yeah, just amazing team of leaders there. It's it's funny kind of stepping into a leadership role of a group of people that are supposed to lead advisors, right? They, that's their job, so it, right. it's very different, right? There are no followers. Right, all, all leaders, all, all, a full pack of uh, A-type personalities. Well, it's well-deserved, Jamie. It's uh, You know, I've, I've known you for some time now, and uh, I can't think of anybody more deserving, so... Uh, well, I wanted to point out, too, that in addition to your work with uh, Carson Wealth, you're also Associate Professor of Taxation at the College of Financial Services uh, in the Retirement Planning Program. Uh, you teach courses in uh, retirement, estate strategies, and life insurance. And today we're going to tackle the, uh, the SECURE Act. We're going to drill yeah. down into the legislation and uh, how it's going to change the retirement planning landscape in the years to come. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it that was basically for me early Christmas. I know everyone else is, you know, spending all their time and updating things and sending out new documents. And I, I was just in my, my zone right then. I was really excited. Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 you know, you were, and you've been way, way out in front of this issue. You know, I, 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 last year you published several articles saying it was coming. Um, I think, you know, it, uh, it it, it, it 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 was on the radar it was off the radar it was coming it wasn't coming but uh, since the law has passed you've been you've had several articles published on one in Forbes magazines and you know what uh, what I've been impressed by is when I read articles on the secure act if it's another person's byline they are likely to quote you in the piece yeah it's it's been really good so funny thing is uh, I forgot about it but my I think my first story that I wrote last year the beginning of 2019 was for investment news. And I actually called it like 2019 will be the year of retirement legislation. And the SECURE Act and RESA were two of the bills I discussed in there. 
And, uh, you know, I did put in there that those are really the only two that I see any likelihood of passing and, you know, just barely got done, Um, but we got pretty, you know, but we got pretty far ahead of this back in the summer. So it passed the house back in June. And so we built a calculator. We wrote wrote white papers. We built PowerPoints. We built presentations. We got it all compliance approved by the end of the summer. So then here we are, we just sat on that. Um, We had, you know, ad campaigns, marketing, everything. And so we just sat on it then. And we had a whole website design. We bought securermd.com, which was a great one. Nice. Uh, so we we had all this stuff sitting there. I mean, just turned the switch in December when it finally passed. We did, I, th- I think it was, uh, what, 2,500 retail leads in the two and a half weeks uh, after the Secure Act passed. I mean, and that's just the power of marketing and, and being right, on top right. of it is, is fun. So, yeah. 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 Uh, you know, and you don't get too many things that pass the house 417 to 3. You really don't. Yeah. If you tell people that today, that 417 people in in the house agree on something, they probably won't believe you. (laughs) (laughs) They won't agree. They they, they would say, nah, nah, that was a misprint. Uh, Somebody missed a number somewhere. Uh, (laughs) All right. Well, let's do this. Let's talk about, uh, let's first talk about the major changes and then talk about some of the lesser known provisions. The, uh, you know, the major changes to the inherited IRA and the change of, and the age going from 70 and a half to 72. Let's go. I'd love to get your perspective on those. Yeah. I mean, those are the two that I'd say have caught headlines, right? Uh, the, the 70 and a half to 72, we'll start there. Honestly, that's a, sem- it's a somewhat minor change, but it did get a lot of headlines because almost every retiree has to worry about RMDs. So it impacts a lot of people. Um, but the reality is the impact's somewhat small. It gives you either a year or two years longer to defer out RMDs. The only big uh, issue that I have from that perspective right now is just make sure if you're talking to clients that your clients that turned 70 and a half last year or possibly even 71 aren't pushing and, and avoiding their RMD for 2020. Right. The reality is they even got notices from, from financial companies, banks, uh, some broker dealers sent out notices by the end of 2019 saying, hey, you own RMD for uh, next year for some people that turn 70 half later and for other people that, you know, so it's just being very clear on what does the rule mean? If you reached age 70 and a half by the end of 2019, you started your required beginning date, which means you need to take an RMD for 2019 due by the April 1st, 2020, and you'll owe another one for 2020. So that's a big deal. I get asked that almost every week at this point. I know that there are going to be, you know, advisors that get that wrong, consumers that get that wrong this year. So uh, we don't want to get that wrong. So be ahead of that one. Right. Right. It is. Uh, it is. Uh, we've received several questions on that, and I've been on uh, a half a dozen webinars, and that always comes up as a question. Do I have to take yeah. an RMD if I turn 70 and a half in 2019? Yep. <laughs> so th- then the next one that's tied to that wasn't part of the Securic, but useful to have as an advisor in your back pocket. IRS has proposed guidelines outright uh, changing the lifetime factor table, right? The numbers you use to calculate RMDs. That is expected to get finalized here pretty soon um, and either see that go into law probably 2021, could be 2022, but in the next couple of years, we're going to see new tables. That's going to reduce down the RMDs. That's actually going to have a bigger impact than the pushback 72 isn't in effect for 2020, but just be be on the lookout for that. A lot of people have asked me about that too. Oh, did the Secure Act change the lifetime factor table? It didn't, but it is going to change almost 
you know, concurrently, right? Probably within a year of the Secure Act passing. So that's, again, just keep it on your back pocket. Be aware of that. Um, and then I know you brought up the the stretch provisions. Uh, by far and away, from a tax perspective, the biggest aspect of the bill, the bill in and of itself, Secure Act, sounds really good. Setting every community up for an Enhanced Retirement Act, right? Oh, wow, nice, that Jay. sounds nice. Cool. <laughs> yeah, that sounds beautiful, right? Does. Every community. Yeah. And if you look at the tax impact of the bill, it is a tax revenue generating bill. Um, from a total uh, deficit perspective, it's about flat because the government actually expects to spend more money because of the bill. This is the double whammy, right? Like literally they're raising taxes on you. And the government says, by raising taxes on you, it got more complex. So we think it's going to cost more money for us to implement this bill. <laughs> And we're going to spend those raised taxes, but without any value, right? This is literally like the raise taxes and spend it by raising taxes. We had to spend more money to enforce the raising of taxes. It's really, you know, from that perspective, it's kind of terrible. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So it, it's, it's, it's a tax revenue generator and it's a government spending bill. It's not really uh, ideal. I don't think a lot of people fall on the side of that looking ideal as a consumer, but reality is it's, it's in effect it's here. And, uh, what, what we see with that piece is that's like 95% of the tax revenue is coming from that specific stretch IRA provision part. So it, removing the stretch, taking it from most people away from lifetime stretch and distribution of inherited accounts to 10 years, unless you fall into one of the exceptions. So the exceptions you know, are fairly limited, um, but surviving spouse is the big one. Um, if you are leaving your account to somebody who's not more than 10 years younger than you, a child of the account owner, so that's a minor, it's not any minor, it's actually the child of the account owner has to be the minor. Um, so grandchildren don't count. Um, disabled individuals under federal law and chronically ill. And chronically ill, I get the question a lot too, which is, uh, you know, who counts as chronically ill? And chronically ill is two activities of daily living. It's essentially the long-term care provisions at the federal level. So a lot of people don't know that one, but that's where that comes from. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, the uh, initially the government said it was going to net $15.7 billion, but they've walked that back quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't have a great grasp on... I actually think they've, to be honest, I think they've underestimated the tax revenue from this bill. Uh, so the the more I start spending time looking at the impact, you know, the, I keep seeing things. I'm like, there's no way they put that into consideration, right? Uh, when you think about something uh, like the 199 cap A deduction, well, if a 55 year old is inheriting a million dollar IRA, taking hundred thousand dollar distributions, they very well could be losing that 20% QBI deduction here in the future. There's no way they put that into their calculations. No, now the no. total impact of that, I don't, I don't know how frequent that's going to be, but there's a lot of those small things of net investment income tax. We've already seen some questions about. So those higher distributions from IRAs in a 10 year period, they're going to be subjecting people to additional taxes and losses of other benefits that there's just no way was in the calculation of the government. Um, most of the time, the government underestimates revenue. 
right? right. They just do. Whenever right. they say, hey, this bill is going to create X. Uh, this one I do, I actually think in the long run, uh, we actually could be, or I should say the government typically overestimates how much revenue they're going to get from a bill. And I think this one actually could be the opposite. I don't know. I mean, it's a lot of this stuff is long play, right? Ten-year yep. distributions yep. and the, 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 especially the multi-employer plans, that's a big question mark. That could be the biggest aspect of this, or it could be another dud. Um, it's kind yep. of a big question. So, yeah. And as I tell people, the, you know, the wealthy people like to play a game, like to play a sport and it's called keep away, keep away from the yeah. IRS. <laughs> and so they, uh, uh, we're just really getting going with digesting what the SECURE Act is all about. And there will be uh, smart people putting together calculations and looking for different avenues. And uh, I, I, I suspect um, retirement planning today will look much different in five years based on the SECURE Act. Yeah, I, I, I think a couple things got big boosts inside the SECURE Act. Um, you know, David McKnight, I don't know if you've ever read his stuff. He's got the book Power of Zero. Right. And right. Uh, yeah, and, and he, you know, I think that strategy actually gets a pretty big shot in the arm right now because, you know, he's been kind of banging the drum for a while that, hey, income tax rates are going to skyrocket at some point. And it's funny because like 10 years ago, he was saying that you fast forward 10 years and income tax rates have not gone up. They've actually gone down somehow. But we're kind of at the point, I don't think anyone believes anymore that in another 10 years, we're going to have lower income tax rates than today. Right. I, I don't I don't run into people believing that. So, you know, then we get to the Roth conversions. We get put things that have tax-free income in the future. So life insurance is one of those. Um, so I think that, you know, move money out of your IRAs into Roths and life insurance, both of them uh, going to look very, very palatable. It's an easy story to tell. It um, is. I do it in right. I do it in front of rooms all the time. And I say, does anyone think tax rates are going to be lower in ten years? Nobody raises their hand. So I'm saying, when should you pay your taxes? Pay them now. So uh, you know, that's a it's a powerful strategy. I think is going to get a big boost from this act. Kind of, you know, side piece that that's always not what's expected, but what might occur. Right. Right. Uh, or let's, Jamie, let's switch over. And uh, so we got the major ones. Uh, let's talk about some of the minor ones, that, the lesser known, that are getting uh, more play. Uh, kind of as the weeks uh, turn, you know, the days turn to weeks and weeks will turn to months. Uh, I'm talking <laughs> about the 500, 529 plan and uh, the child, the, the, the withdrawal from the, um, uh, the IRA to pay for a child or an adoption. Yeah, so we'll hit the 529 first. Um, the 529 one meaning you can take $10,000 now from a 529 plan um, as a qualified federal expense from a 529 distribution to pay for student loan principal or interest per beneficiary or their sibling. So kind of a odd piece there. Um, however, and I made this kind of important, it's a federal exemption. Um, for the 529. Right. The state level is still a question mark. So we went back a couple years ago, Tax Cut and Job Act allowed that K through 12 distribution from 529s. And a lot of states said, hey, look, we're not going to consider that. Like, that's fine at the federal level, it meets it, but not at the state level. So if you got a state income tax deduction for funding your 529, you pull it out for those uh, non-qualified state exemptions like K through 12, or we don't know yet about the student loan. So it's possible that some of those states are going to follow suit here with the federal and say, hey, we follow the federal. The federal says student loans are good, student loans are good. But some states are going to say, 
no, if you take that money out to pay student loan interest, we're going to recapture, we're going to remove that income tax deduction at the state level you got for funding the 529. So uh, th that is a downside, right? Um, and we just don't know yet. So people keep asking me, I was out in Colorado, um, I guess last week, and that came up in an event. Somebody asked me, what do you think they're going to do? And I have no idea what Colorado is going to do, but I know Colorado didn't go the K through 12 uh, you know, uh, qualified 529 deduction. So I said, you know, I think if they were hesitant on that side before, I would consider being hesitant again with them here. So, uh, you know, wait and see on that. I love the provision, um, but you have to have a 529 funded, right? Money's got to be there in order to do this. And it's a small amount, the 10,000. Right. right. Uh, if you, and then we can just hop right into the other one since you brought it up, sure. which is the uh, the 72T, that, that early withdrawal 10% penalty tax, right? They created a new exception for that, which is birth of a child or adoption of a child. Within 12 months of that legal date of adoption or birth, you can pull $5,000 as an individual from an IRA or defined contribution plan, so 401k included, and not be subject to the 10% penalty. That's per individual. So husband, wife, right? Have a kid. Both could pull out five thousand dollar each from their IRA, no penalty tax tax if that applies. But the cool thing about this bill, I'd say there's two really nice features. Uh, you could make it three. So we'll just make it three. Everyone likes the power of three, yeah. right? <laughs> the first yeah. one is public policy wise, this feels nice because childcare is so expensive. Having a kid is so expensive. The medical bills around that are so expensive. So just to have something in the bill recognizing this is nice. Right. 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 Um the second one is it, you don't have to track expenses. That's not very normal for these exemptions. Like typically, you got to keep all your receipts and documentation. Hmm. You just have to show the kid was born. Ah, interesting. <laughs> right? I, I didn't hear that. That's fascinating. So you just, yeah. you, the kid's born, take five grand. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's no other uh, tracking of it. You just have to make sure that you file that the kid was on your tax return, basically that they exist, right? Um, there's filing on the federal level for that, but that's it. No expenses, no receipts. No, you know, if your insurance covered everything at the hospital, you still qualify for the $5,000 exemption. So that's pretty cool. And then the third part, which is pretty unique and new, they, they added a feature where you could actually write pay back the money. So we used to call this leakage, right? You could take it. It sounds bad. It is bad, right? Money leaks out of the account. And uh, it's using all this money for things that are not retirement-related expenditures. We worry then people don't have any money for retirement. So they'll actually allow you to pay back this money into the account. So it's almost like, you know, you can almost think of it like a loan. It's not. As soon as I say that, then people start asking me questions, how it interplays with the loan provisions. It doesn't. <laughs> but uh, it, it's kind of like that idea that you you can put it back in. There's some complexity on how you can repay it, but it can be repaid. So if you're really just in a cash flow crunch, we had somebody already contact us at Carson in January, husband, wife, kind of the Henry's, the high uh, earners, low asset, just bought a vacation home, about to have a kid, um, don't have a lot of cash, not sure they're going to use the exception yet, but they have money in an IRA. And they said right. they just wanted to know about it. And we'll see. Um, I think their, their kids do in February. They might say like in the summer, hey, we, we just we're a little tight on cash. Ten grand would really help. And then next year, pay it back. Right. Um, so yeah. that's that's kind of a possibility uh, where you can see that come into play. Interesting. Fascinating. 
Uh, fascinating that you don't have to track the expenses. Boy, oh boy, the uh, you think about that with your health savings account, where you have to account for every penny <laughs> that comes out. But uh, this, you can take five grand, and if uh, if you're in such a position, you can go to Hawaii. Yeah, there you go. If that's how, if that's how, I don't know a lot of uh, parents their first year that spend ten grand to go to Hawaii or so, but you know, I'm sure they're there. I guess you have the baby moon, so I guess if that was still sitting on your credit card, you hadn't paid it. You have the kid now. You have a penalty free uh, distribution event. There you go. There you go. <laughs> well, th- those are those are just a couple of the provisions. There there are more, but Jamie, I wanted to keep bouncing us ahead because uh, I wanted to get to some. Uh, some things that I'm sure you and your team have looked at rather closely because, you know, common wisdom for retirement income says you spend your taxable money first and mm-hmm. then your tax deferred income followed by your tax exempt income, your, your taxable money, your uh, money in your regular account, then your tax deferred money you'd have in your uh, traditional IRA, and then you'd spend your Roth IRA money last. Um, yeah. The thinking that to keep the tax deferred income growing and the tax, uh, tax exempt tax deferred income growing as long as possible. Does the Secure Act put that common wisdom on its head? Does a does a person inheriting an IRA? Uh, I I look at it and think, gosh, if I'm giving them, um, uh, if I have a million dollars in my IRA and a million dollars in a regular account, if I enter retirement now, I may be more inclined to spend my IRA first, and then transfer the traditional account to my kids because there's no restrictions on that. Yeah. <sighs> Also, I mean, when you start wrapping in the legacy pieces here, right, if you have a a non-qualified account or a brokerage account, right, just I usually say non-qualified now because not everyone's in a brokerage, but non-qualified assets, right, and you got stocks, well, they get a step up in basis too at death. So like we're we're transferring essentially that income tax, you know, and getting rid of it, Um, whereas our IRA, we're not. We're going to pay income taxes on that at one of the two. So to some degree, it it is best to leave. You know, I think that we're going to for people who are looking to leave in a legacy, I think we're going to see a big change in there. I would tell you, to be honest, for the last two or three years, when we do deep dives of planning, that rule of thumb doesn't hold up all that well anyway. We had, because, you know, what we're doing a lot of is trying to convert money, right? That, you know, 62 to 70, we're doing so many conversions right, right now right. Um, that, you know, and because we're in a low tax rate environment. We've got to get that money out. The person's recently retired. They don't have a lot of income, right? They haven't started RMDs yet when their income's going to go up again. We're, we're, I mean, so there's a lot of play to move that. The biggest thing is really tax diversification too. When we look at a lot of accounts, we were doing some of this last week. We pulled up a account. They were 96% or something of their investable assets were in tax deferred. Um, they had a tiny bit of qualified and like a $7,000 Roth. <laughs> oh boy. Oh <laughs> you know, boy. Like, you know, it was just all this taxable money. that's all subject to RMDs. And it's like, we've really got to start a conversion strategy and they're in their fifties. So it's okay. So they've got time. Um, but you know, like that's a terrible outcome when they get to retirement, when you're running the two projections, you're just like, it's so much better to get some of this converted when we can staying within our brackets, right. Getting that control by the time we get there. So that's big. Um, I, yeah, I think that the, the, the other two stayed kind of good. Roth looks really, really powerful today. Non-qualified still looks really good because we still have step-up rules. We still have long-term capital gains. 
the qualified assets keep looking worse and worse, to be honest. I mean, you get you're getting some people out there that are pretty heavy hitters in the academic world that are that are starting to look at the the qualified retirement assets and saying, you know, is this really that good of a deal anymore? Right. Um, you're taking basically investing long term capital gains assets. You're getting ordinary income tax on them. You're having forced distributions, and now you're having a heavy forced distribution time period over ten years. Right. T- to be honest, it's still beneficial, but it's it doesn't look like it used to to some degree. Yeah, so. the bloom the bloom is off the rose a little. Yeah, it's it, you know they've they've kind of whittled that back a little bit from the federal level, and uh, um, you know I I think that. As I said before, I think we're going to see a lot of Roth conversions. I think we'll see some more higher withdrawals for higher net worth people out of IRAs to fund life policies. Um, that strategy has been around for a while, but I, I was watching Bob Keebler and some of the other people again say, hey, look, this has this got some teeth again. And I think the story's easy. So I, I, I keep telling people, you know, it's not a big strategy that we use at Carson, but I kind of, you know, as you've seen, I, I kind of take tend to take this more almost third party look of even the place I'm at all the time. So that <laughs> yeah, just yeah. everyone's always happy with me there. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's but true. It's kind yeah, of how I look at things. So yeah, I'm like, I mean, Hey, that's a good strategy. So <laughs> yeah, I, I, I sat on a webinar and they spent 10 minutes on using life insurance as that wealth transfer channel versus uh, thinking about a, a, a traditional IRA anymore. But you know, you talked, yeah. on, talked about the Roth IRA. Let's, let's just take a minute with that too. Cause uh, you recently wrote an article for four, and you talked about uh, the spotlight is on the Roth IRA and how more powerful it is in estate planning. Uh, let's let's spend a little bit of time on that because I think that is yeah. something that uh, listeners need to hear. Yeah. So when I start a Roth conversation, I, I, I typically start with one of the things I already said, which is where do you think tax rates are going? Does anyone in the room thinks tax rates are going to be higher in 10 years than they are today? And then you know, I ask you, raise your hand, nobody raise your hand. And it's like, well, when would you rather pay taxes? Then when they're higher in the future or when they're lower today? We'd rather pay when they're lower today. So then convert, right? That's your decision. Um, right. you, you've answered the questions to get to where you should be. Um, now, that's only one piece of the puzzle. So the second piece really becomes if you've got growth assets, you're, you've got a long time horizon. Again, where do you want your growth assets to be? Like, of course, I want my growth assets to be in the account that grows tax free, not yeah. the one that's low tax today and high taxes in the future, right? Like, if I could put something $10,000 away, Right in something today, and it's going to grow to twenty million. I don't want that to be in a traditional IRA. Uh, it's, it's you know that's really really high taxes. Then when I've got to take that out, I would love to put ten grand into something, have it grow to twenty million in a Roth. That's awesome. Darn right? Right. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So that's a good place. So when you start thinking about your asset location decisions, our growth assets, we want to try to position them into to Roth accounts as much as we can. Um, the other thing is I ask people, so if you had a million-dollar account, I came to you today, Mike, and I said, you got a million-dollar IRA. You're about, you're 69 years old, about to turn 70, you know, or we can make you 71 now, about to turn 72, and, uh, right, you're, you're going to take RMDs soon. Tell me what you like, you know, as a client, would you pay something not to have RMDs anymore? Would you give me 50 grand and make it 950,000 and you don't owe any RMDs? I think a lot of our clients would say, yeah, I'll give you 50 grand out of my out of my million not to have any more RMDs for the next 25 years. Yeah, I'll do that. Absolutely. Right. Um, So the whole point about that is that there's some value in control. Right. There's some value in having the government not tell you when to spend your money. And so, again, like if you're willing to pay 50 grand for that, 
then like that's the taxes on some amount of money on a conversion, right? Um, so tell me what that is, right? What's your number that you're willing to pay just not to have required minimum distributions anymore? And, and so if there's a number there, there's some amount we can convert, right? Um, so that to me is also a powerful thing. And then from the estate planning under the SECURE Act, here's the best part about it. The Roth IRA is still subject to the 10-year distribution. But if I've got a million dollars and I'm looking at Roth or traditional, would I rather have the, you know, account as a Roth, we'll just make it 750000 um, versus a million-dollar IRA. Do I want to take $100,000 out a year at the traditional, or would I rather have a Roth at seven fifty? Because what could I do with the Roth? I could literally just let that thing sit for 10 years and grow tax-free for 10 years as an heir and pull money out in any year and never have any taxable income from it. That's awesome. Whereas the traditional, you know, I'm going to try to levelize those distributions as much as possible. I don't ever want to be in a year where I have to take a million dollar lump sum distribution because my taxes are going to be, I'm going to subject, yeah, I'm going to subject that to the highest marginal rate possible for the majority of the money. And that's not a good strategy. So the Roth, when we start looking at the 10 year is also just better. So it's better from an RMD. It's better from a growth perspective. It's better from taking advantage of taxes today. And it's better from estate plan. So everything else being equal, it's got like five or six additional check marks to it today. Um, That doesn't mean I think everyone needs to get all their money in Roth accounts. I've seen some people comment on my articles. I I try not to read comments anymore. I actually published uh, over 100 articles in Forbes, Kiplinger, Investment News, Barron's last year, which was crazy. Um, So I I try not to read comments because, you know, that's the internet troll. But a lot of people are like, this guy just loves Ross. And I'm like, one of the reasons I talk about Ross is because they're underutilized today. Not because I think everyone needs to get into a Roth account. Um, but they're underutilized. When we look at the numbers, plain and simply, people have more tax-deferred money than they have Roth money. And what we need to get is a better tax diversification balance. So when I push on the value of Roth, it's because people aren't using it enough. Um, like I often, you know, kind of just, I, I use this d- dumb example at one point, like, you know, people people don't have to push the stuff we already know. Like I don't have to go on TV and say, you know, it's really important, Mike, for you to breathe air every day. Like it's <laughs> just really important, right? Like if you want to stay alive for a long time, you got to breathe air. And I'm not going to build a campaign about breathing air, maybe clean air, but not just breathing air. Well, we know that already. I don't need to sell you on that, but eating healthy or different ways to eat healthy or different ways to work out or better ways to sleep. Yeah, we know those things help, but the basics people just know. So like that's why I kind of hound a couple strategies, you know, and I really hound the reverse mortgage and housing wealth side. And we've talked about that before too. Like, right. I, and it's not because I think that that's better than other strategies, but I know it's underutilized. And the same thing's true still today in the Roth world. Maybe not in the advisory world. Advisors are pretty good with Roths today, um, but the general consumer world, vastly underutilized. Vastly under. Yeah. When you look at the statistics, it's staggering how much money is in traditional IRAs versus Roth IRAs. And, yeah. and what you touched on there was a, a, a tax diversification strategy, because I, I think as you and I are here in 10 years, Will the Roth be treated the same way? Well, maybe, maybe not. Who knows? Yeah. We know what it is today, uh, but um, uh, it's sure, you know, uh, you can't have a, a 10 to 1 ratio or a 20 to 1 ratio with your money in one basket. <laughs> I think this is the, the Secure Act has done a real strong wake-up call to people trying to get a little more tax balanced. And yeah. uh, I think that that's the moral of the story. That's the outcome people should take yeah. from this. 
Yeah, we, we've got a plan for today with the flexibility to adjust in the future, right? I mean, that's what it's all about. Like, right. I, I've got to deal with the laws today, but I don't want to build a plan that's inflexible and can't change as the laws change because the laws are going to change, right? The markets are going to change. All of that's going to change. It's a, you know, so we have to build that flexibility in. Yeah, I remember when the the the, the trial balloon was first floated on this for the Secure Act, right? Withdrawing yeah. your traditional IRA in ten years, and that was probably like I don't know, I'll say two, three, four years ago, and you know it yeah. kind of came up and went down, but then you know it got traction, then it took hold, and, and now here it is that uh, we've got a plan, we've got to have a plan that's flexible enough to account for that. Yeah, it's it's funny on that. Uh, a lot of the provisions in this have actually been around a long time. So some people are like, "Wow, that was really surprising at passed the end of the year." And I'm like, to be honest, I've been somewhat surprised that these provisions haven't passed sooner. Really, the ten-year provision we got is better than we could have. So, like, if you're thinking from an advisor and tax perspective, we actually got a pretty generous one, right? There's a five-year floated out there. Um, there's a five-year with no um, kind of. A minimum cap on it. Uh, so this was a little bit more flexible. And there was, you know, some people pushed for the 10 year with equal 10 year distributions. This gave us more flexibility than that. And uh, some people have been asking me, is there any chance that DC, you know, party switching or just mood switching is going to overturn or change the Secure Act? Not in any substantial way. You brought it up before 417 to three vote. Um, you know, in the Senate, it actually had 97 votes. Um, they were trying to get 100. Uh, Ted Cruz and two others were opposed to the bill um, due to the 529 language, actually, not uh, on the other ones. So uh, 529s are going to keep getting modified. I mean, the whole student loan side, nobody has the solution for yet. So that's still, uh, th that piece will absolutely change. But the, the removal of the stretch is gone. I mean, w we actually got probably lucky it wasn't worse than a 10-year distribution period. Yeah, absolutely. As I've, as I've pointed out, it could have been worse. They could have said all the money that's in the traditional IRAs is locked there at this point. Yeah. They can't move it out. So it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's more certainty to the revenue. At least it, with this, you have flexibility to in your decisions. Yeah. Jamie, let me close you with uh, one question. You've been awesome today. Uh, I, I want to end with the notion about uh, we've, we've touched on it a little bit with, uh, with Roth's conversions and using life insurance, but I want to talk just a little bit about how, how you talk to financial advisors about making money with the secure act. It seems like they're a little bit caught holding the bag. They have to talk about it, but you know, when it comes to drawing up trusts, that money's going to go to lawyers to talk you know, some, some yeah. of the, in some ways it doesn't necessarily benefit them, but how are you spinning it? How are you talking to advisors? Well, so if you're an advisor that leads with planning, you can hit people with three or four really quick things. And that is, again, you mentioned uh, trust review, beneficiary review, charitable planning is going to be a big one right? And then, you know, kind of your legacy. So those are kind of tied together. And I say legacy because it's it's not just what's the tax implications of the new 10-year stretch, but it's really what did you want to leave that money for, right? Like that's going to have more of an impact. Um, so that then will drive to, do we need life insurance? Do we need conversions? Do we need a trust? Um, but those areas are really, really good. If you're leading with planning, you're going to get a lot of value out of those today. And they're quick and easy conversations to just get into how a client really feels about things. So again, who do you want to leave the money to? Charitable planning and legacy. That's really tied to the SECURE Act. Now, there's two other aspects that you can make money on on this or drive business. So uh, both of them are going to come later in the year. But so I've 
told if I, I think I did training on Tuesday and I told advisors this, write this down because later in the year, you're going to start thinking about this. Um, first one is the multiple employer plans. You, you've got to start bringing that up in the fall. They're not on the market yet. They're coming in 2021, but those could be a game changer. And I still shrug. I don't know. I've been somewhat skeptical, but they're coming. And they're going to have value for those clients you have that are running SEPs and simples and don't have retirement plans today. You're going to be able to get in front of them in the fall when places like Fidelity and John Hancock and TD and Schwab start announcing what they're going to be doing on these. All of those places are getting into the market. They're going to have some type of advisory benefit there. So get these plans set up. Start talking to them, saying, hey, look, a cheap 401k is coming on the market that somebody else is going to manage filing the 5500 form. You're just going to plug in your employees, and we're going to run in this thing. It's going to be really great for you. Really simple, really low cost, really valuable. So you've got to start those conversations. That's not a one-day sale. But and as I told the room, if you're not going to talk to them about it, somebody else somebody is willing else will. to do right. that. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right? So, yeah. so start that before it rolls out. So this fall, get ahead of that. The other one is around the annuities. So not a lot, not every advisor um, is going to be selling annuities or selling them inside of plans, but that new provision is also coming. So if you're on the annuity sales side, start thinking about how am I going to incorporate my annuity business inside of these retirement plans? Am I going to play a role in that? Because they just opened up the door for this. Um, so we're going to see more and more plans adding annuities. Now, if you're not on the annuity side, it also means talking to your clients about what they're investing in. Right. And actually getting back to that planning and saying, hey, you know, uh, Sally, like, I know you got this 401k. Just be aware over the next couple of years, there might be some different investments. And before you make investment decisions in your 401k, let's sit down. Let's talk through those. Let's understand what is available there, you know, because you're just trying to be that trusted professional that they're going to go to. Um, obviously, if you're on the sales side, that's how you're going to make money. The other one is just getting ahead of it, because, again, the annuity people are going to sell in there. If you're not selling the annuities in the plans, then you just got to be looking like that trusted professional that's providing advice. Um, so, again, I think getting ahead of that because, you know, the, the uh, Alliance for Lifetime Income spending a lot of money, the, right. right? They're sponsoring the Rolling Stones again. They were after the Super Bowl or whatever, right? <laughs> right, right. Millions of dollars are being spent on advertising here on these annuities. There was a big lobbying effort, right? So the traditional advisor, you're competing against that, and they're making some really good progress right now on that side. So I'd say, you know, keep your eyes open on that. And that story on the life and annuities right now is really powerful with that, you know, kind of with those tax, uh, those because some of those tax hikes kind of related to the SECURE Act and qualified money, some of that non-qualified annuities and life insurance look pretty powerful. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, I'm doing a webinar, as I mentioned later today, to talk to advisors. And uh, the first thing I'm going to tell them is if they haven't put an email out, if they don't have something out, they've got to plan on getting it out within the next couple of weeks. You've got to be on record as saying you know what's going on here because it is, whether you like it or not, we've opened a new page. Yep. So yeah, I know I, you, you've got an FM and FMG suite, right? Have materials on this. You said you yep. build a lot, right? Um, and then obviously Carson through Carson coaching, we've got a lot of materials too. And, and we actually, you know, partner up together on that side too. Yep, so we do, yeah, right? if, if anyone's listening to this, you say, man, I really need information on that, right? Reach out to the two organizations. We have a lot of content and good things out there. And, you know, we can help you get some of those things out the door because you have to, right? You, 
what are we, we're in February now uh, when we're shooting this and you, you can't still be sitting on the sideline saying I haven't looked at it yet. Yep. <laughs> you can't, you can't, you're right. Jamie, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule today. Greatly appreciate it. Know you're yep. uh, traveling quite a bit and know you're doing quite a bit uh, with Carson coaching and uh, we greatly appreciate it. Yep. Awesome. Thanks again for your time. Thanks guys. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Market Emotion podcast for financial advisors. If you found this episode informative, please share with your peers and colleagues. Visit fmgsuite.com to discover more great resources and products to transform you into an extraordinary marketer and grow your advisory. Subscribe and get updates delivered right to your inbox.